Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I have my good friend with me, David Clooney. Um, I've known this brother for a long time. He's one of the best and brightest political minds, but he does something that we don't do enough of. He connects the grassroots with the grass tops. He connects grassroots with money to help us pass initiatives that we want done. David Clooney is also the executive director of the BEA and the Black Economic Alliance, which we'll get into. But how are you doing today, my brother? What's going on? I'm well. It's great to be with you. I appreciate you having me on your podcast. For sure. You know, we start each one of our episodes on this show the same way because I want my listeners to be able to understand that they didn't, you just didn't arrive where you are. So walk us through the arc of your career. And I know yours has spanned private practice, government and politics, and now the advocacy world. But talk, uh, talk us through each of your career stops since Howard Law and how those stops have shaped your orientation toward the work you do now at the BEA. Yeah, I appreciate that question. And, and Howard Law is an important place to start because uh, I went right from the State University of New York at Albany, where I went to college, to Howard Law. And at Howard Law, I learned uh, it has a legacy of civil rights engagement, particularly um, driven by um, Charles Hamilton Houston, who was the dean of the law school when Thurgood Marshall was a student there. And um, he had a saying that a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. And that was uh, to instill all of us with the responsibility to work for our communities, regardless of the line of work we go into. So when I went, uh, came directly out of law school, went into a corporate law firm, uh, what's called the White Shoe, um, big corporate law firm in New York City, where I'm from, uh, was doing primarily commercial litigation, but spent a lot of time doing pro bono work around civil rights, voting rights, uh, prisoner uh, community relations, or uh, police community relations, prisoners' rights, et cetera. Um, and really found that to be you know, my, my primary interest and, and went from there to clerk for a federal judge for a year, went to work on the 2008 Obama campaign out in Iowa doing voter protection. I was a deputy director of voter protection for the state of Iowa um, and really fell in love while I was working on the campaign with this um, movement that was way bigger than me and being a part of something that uh, was way bigger than me. And, and uh, a number of friends went from the campaign to work in the administration. I went back to my law firm for a little while, found myself at uh, the Obama White House in 2010, and then eventually the uh, Obama Treasury Department, where I was an Obama appointee in the front office with two Treasury secretaries, first Tim Geithner and then Jack Lew, um, and then came back home to New York uh, just about a year before the Obama administration ended. Uh, and my job would have ended because I served at the pleasure of the president. Um, came home to New York to work at J.P. Morgan Chase, where I was a managing director in uh, government relations and corporate responsibility, uh, where I remained there uh, for about four and a half years until I came to the Black Economic Alliance in 2020. Um, but at every step in my career, I was doing more work around economic empowerment, um, empowering underserved communities, particularly Black folks. And I felt like I was doing it as a bit of a side hustle and extracurricular work. And, and after spending more and more of my time doing this work, I said, let me go do this full time. Uh, so when I was introduced to the Black Economic Alliance, when I was at J.P. Morgan Chase, um, I, I thought, you know, this is a match made in heaven and this is exactly where I want to be. Before we talk about the BEA and the great work that we do over there, I want to talk about your work in the Obama administration. You worked in the Department of Treasury and in the White House. Can you talk about what you learned about how administrations operate uh, in those roles. And what's your take on how the Biden White House is performing given the situation they inherited and the circumstances they're operating under? And both good questions. So, you know, it, it was eye-opening seeing how the sausage is made and uh, understanding that people are human and, and you know, nobody has it all figured out. And, and presidential administrations deal with the toughest 
challenges of our society. Um, and, and you can look at every presidential administration and the things they've dealt with. Um, but it was it was also amazing for me to see public servants at their best and people who literally gave up um, time with their families, significant made significant financial contributions, were living in other cities than you know where their family lived and would commute sometimes across country or, or different parts of the country, all in the name of service. And um, I, I was so fortunate, you know, we many books will be written about how transformational um, Barack Obama and his presidency were. Um, and, and what it meant to our country at the time. But um, it, for me, it was a real opportunity to uh, get to serve with some of the smartest, most capable, most dedicated public servants in America. And I think it's something that every, most administrations that we've seen, you know, ha are full of people who uh, really just want to make our country a better place and, and working at the White House as an attorney and then at the Treasury Department, particularly working on our economy as we're coming out of uh, the Great Recession and uh, the financial crisis of 2008, um, these are hard problems and there's no playbook and, and people had to figure things out and take risks, but also make very well-informed data-driven decisions. And I think we saw the impact of those. It was interesting to see, you know, the, the criticism of the Obama administration in particular, the treasury department, Tim Geithner in particular, early on in 2009, and folks are saying he doesn't have it figured out, you know, these folks don't know what they're doing, so on and so forth. And a lot of the risks and investments, uh, the very, very hard decisions, unpopular decisions they made, really turned out, you know, to, to drive what was the, you know, largest and most, you know, uh, sustained economic growth we've seen in our lifetime. So um, phenomenal experience, um, and, and really eye opening. And then what I say about the Biden administration now, you know, I, I get this question often, and, and it's, the, the, the answer is complicated because on one hand, they have absolutely made a historic, unprecedented focus on racial equity that we didn't even see during the Obama administration. We can have a lot of conversation about the backdrop, the political backdrop that we had, you know, over 10 years ago and that we have now. Things are very different, but just in general, um, you know, do things like on day one, making racial equity, you know, one of the top priorities of the, of the administration and um, putting in place, you know, an unprecedented number of uh, appointees that BEA has been very closely involved with, you know, helping to source and advocate for in place, and particularly folks in key economic roles, Black folks in key economic roles they've never been in before. But the, other, the flip side of that is the bar has been set way too low. Um, and, and, you know, for us to <laughs> say that we're doing better than before is not nearly good enough. Black folks have never been full participants in our democracy. Black folks have never been full participants in our economy. Um, our country has paid the price for it. There are a lot of statistics that show, you know, the loss in um, GDP growth uh, because of racial inequality. Just one report showed $16 trillion of lost potential in the last 20 years and that we could add $5 trillion to the U.S. GDP if we were to uh, close the black white wealth gap. Um, but that is to say they are making progress, but not nearly enough. And, and we, we have this conversation with the BEA has this conversation with the Biden administration all the time about, you know, where we think they're getting it right. But the many places there is room for more improvement. We know that they are working very hard. They, they have a thankless, really, really hard job at a hard time when, you know, <laughs> I think every challenge is being thrown at them, particularly economically with things like a war in Ukraine and inflation and coming out of, you know, we've never seen the economy just take a full stop before. It stopped in March of 2020. Everybody's, you know, went in their houses and stayed there. Um, but we also have an opportunity to make investments that we've never made before and a reallocation of assets and the leveling of the playing field that, you know, trillions of dollars literally going into the economy. We have to be able to do it better. We have to 
be smarter and learn from our mistakes before. Um, and, and I don't, I don't think we're doing enough of that. Um, so that's, that's where we have a really, um, you know, kind of tough love relationship with the Biden administration. Let's say this, my last question for you along these lines, but let's just say that maybe somebody listening to this and, and Biden calls you and taps you to be senior advisor to him. Um, and you're charged with energizing black voters in 2022, what would you be telling them to do and say? So one of the important things about energizing black voters is helping us realize as a collective how much power we have if and when we show up. Um, and that is not to blame black folks and say, well, if we just showed up and things would be better. But I don't think we collectively understand the impact that we have made and can make if and when we show up in mass. Um, BEA, the BEA PAC, uh, one of our three arms of our organization, put out some research in 2020 um, that a brother named Terrence Woodbury from Hit Strategies helped us put together showing that Black folks make up the majority of, uh, of Democratic voters in Georgia, Mississippi, and South Carolina. You know, you think about the history of what Black voters have done in, in Mississippi, for example, right after the 15th Amendment was passed, you know, we elected two Black senators and a number of members of the House. This is, you know, years after slavery was abolished. Now, the, the backlash to that was... Um, you know, essentially putting in place the most aggressive voter suppression laws that reduced Black voter participation from something like 90% to 6% in the span of 10 years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, we've seen this playbook before, but that is all to say, I think I, our message, my message, if I were in the, the Biden administration, is to show people by the data just what we can do if and when we show up, um, but also to demonstrate that we are necessary. We are perhaps not perhaps we are the most necessary block of voters to help any candidate get elected. And, and if any big candidate understands that, it is Joe Biden, who, you know, was running, I think, number five um, among the field of Democratic candidates until he went to South Carolina in 2020 and absolutely had a revival. And I use that term, you know, intentionally, <laughs> pun intended, had a revival in uh, in South Carolina. And, you know, the church showed up, Black folks showed up. Jim Clyburn said, you know, get your people to show up. And, and we did that. And it absolutely changed the course of the rest of the election. So that would be my message to Black folks. It would be that, but it would also be that we have an incomplete commitment that has been made by this uh, administration to Black folks and to racial equity, and let's help them follow through on their commitment because they need us more than they need any other Black voters. Let's talk about the BEA. Tell me what it is and what are the organization's constituent parts? So the Black Economic Alliance is a coalition of Black CEOs and senior executives, business executives who came together not long after the 2016 election to create more political power and uh, a seat at the table for Black folks economically. Um, the, the laser focus of the organization is creating wealth for Black people, and it is about creating infrastructure for wealth building. And the components of the organization that we do that through are our political arm, our PAC, our um, advocacy arm, our 501c4, and our foundation, our 501c3. So we, we think about our work in the three pillars of politics, policy, and programs. Um, so on the political side, we are, you know, we've all heard the adage, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Black folks have been on the menu for the entirety of uh, American history. We have never been at the table. You have among BEA, some of the most high capacity, impactful black donors in politics, yep. um, who after the 2016 election said, this is not good enough. We are not going to raise millions of dollars for candidates and have no string attached, have no ask, have no return on our investment. Um, so we're going to do it ourselves. I'm going to do it you know, very well. And we were, we've been able to do that in you know, now two election cycles going into our third. Um, you also, uh, through advocacy, we, we have to be able to advocate for 
public policies that close the wealth gap. I talked about the numbers around what that means to the entire economy. Um, you also have you know, a, a group of business leaders who, uh, Vernon Jordan, who, you know, um, may he rest in peace, when, when BEA was coming together, Vernon Jordan is somebody who had been doing a lot of this work on his own, um, driving the business community to, um, you know, to, to action. And, and he occupied this rarefied air of senior Black folks in the business community with power and with the platform. He said, we now have a critical mass of folks in this space that we've never had before. So we have a responsibility to use this power collectively to help the many Black folks who are not in the boardrooms that we're in, that are not in the rooms that we're in with senior executives and CEOs and others. Um, so that is a big piece of it as well, is bringing business acumen to um, public policy making, to private sector policy, to banking policy, all the things that impact the way that Black folks interact with our democracy and our economy. Uh, and then our foundation, which uh, is, has been you know, a great growing part of our organization, which allows us to um, do things like stand-up uh, programming like the Center for Black Entrepreneurship at Spelman and Morehouse College, a uh, $50 million fund to invest in Black entrepreneurs, um, whole new uh, work around data. Uh, we, we, there's a dearth of race-related economic data uh, that helps us make better informed decisions. So BEA, as I talked about building infrastructure, these are all pieces of the infrastructure that we need for Black folks to um, reach full participation in our democracy and in our economy. So BEA is using the collective resources of some of the most successful, well-resourced, well-connected uh, Black business leaders to uh, create better infrastructure for Black folks to build well. So you have a lot of Black organizations in Washington, NAACP, the Urban League, and then you have younger groups like Campaign Zero. How is the BEA different and why is the BEA necessary is probably the most important question I'll ask you today. Yeah, BEA is different. Uh, we, we absolutely need the work of, of you know, the phenomenal organizations who have been working for Black liberation for over 100 years. I sit on the board of, I've had the pleasure of sitting on the board of the National Urban League for over five years and have seen, you know, just the, the, the integration that an organization like that, that NAACP and, and others have, you know, in, in communities all around the country and, and serve communities, local communities by, you know, affiliates, but also the national organization. And, and we are friends and colleagues of the, the you know, eight legacy civil rights organizations as, as well as others. What we haven't had before and what the, the, the void and, and lane that BEA is operating in is a group of people who um, have the um, both insight and experience to sit in a corporate boardroom, but also sit in a, um, you know, sit in, in, in the halls of Congress, but also be in communities and, and bridge these worlds that you know, we uh, many of many of which we've never been in. You know, black folks. We've talked a lot in the last two years about how underrepresented we are on boards of directors, how underrepresented we are in C suites. The Black Economic Alliance makes up, you know, uh, I think the vast majority of of black folks who have achieved that type of professional success and occupy the rarefied air of you know the few black folks who sit on boards of directors and are trying to create pathways for other folks to come behind them. Um, but also can be the voice in the room that is not represented otherwise. Um, and that, you know, when when things go horribly wrong, the CEOs uh, pick up the phone and call and say, how do we navigate out of this? Or we proactively, um, you know, make our voices heard and, and speak up in these rooms and, and help um, organizations with vast resources see uh, the opportunity for them to be part of the solution uh, instead of part of the problem. But also, these are folks who, you know, we, we as one example, BEA in 2020, in one event, raised over $2 million for uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. It was black first. Folks, we, 
It was virtual. We've never seen Black folks do something like that before. And that is the kind of, those are the kind of spaces we need to be occupying and, and taking our rightful seat at the table, taking the reins of our power and distributing it among um, the Black community. And, and we work arm in arm with uh, the legacy civil rights organizations and other Black groups that have been around and make sure that we are all firing on all cylinders and um, using the access we have in different places to make sure that we are advocating from the inside as well as the outside. So let's talk about these issues. What issues and these tangible things that you that you you mentioned, you know, have some type of strength? But what issues do you lobby on Washington and tell people what type of success you've actually had on these issues? Yeah, so um, that is one of the, the and I appreciate you using the word lobby. That's one of the necessary things about, you know, the, the advocacy arm of our organization is the ability to lobby Congress and um, advocate on behalf of the passage uh, of you know, pending legislation, being able to um, weigh in on legislation. And I, I'd say, you know, one of the, the big successes we had um, was and has been a, a push to get resources to the community development financial institution and minority depository institution community. You know, these are organizations that you hear the term CDFI and MDI often, but these are organizations and, and many MDIs are black banks. These are organizations that have been serving a need in the community for a very long time among, you know, I told you I worked at the Treasury Department and the largest bank in America. Black folks are woefully underserved by the traditional financial services industry. Um, these organizations, there are over, you know, 1150 uh, community development financial institutions. They essentially are embedded in communities, many of them communities of color. Um, and, and essentially create, provide um, low-cost capital and opportunities um, for access to capital that, that in many cases Black folks just wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and we were instrumental in 2020, for example, um, bringing to get, both helping to, to weigh in on the creation of this legislation, but then also um, helping to introduce it to the world. We had a, um, uh, uh, an event in July of 2020 where we had over a thousand people on a Zoom line um, with Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Chuck Schumer, uh, Mark Warner, uh, Greg Meeks, et cetera, et cetera, talking about, and we also had talking about how we fit in with our other organizations, um, Derek Johnson from the NAACP and Mark Morial from the uh, National Urban League, come in and talk about just what this means to the infrastructure for Black folks to get access to capital. Um, and we had seven Republican and seven Democratic co-sponsors on this bill. I had the bill pass at the end of the year, a $12 billion version of it. So, you know, $12 billion of capital, both short-term and long-term to this community. That is just one example of the type of infrastructure we're able to build and very importantly, doing it in a bipartisan way. So BEA was reaching out to the Trump White House at the time. BEA was engaging with folks on both sides of the aisle. Um, and you think about the role that business leaders, you know, business leaders have played in bringing kind of bipartisan support for different issues. That is something that BEA is able to do in a very different way. So, you know, access to capital is a huge issue. Home ownership is a huge issue. Um, democracy and voting rights is a huge issue. You know, it, it, the, our place in our democracy and our place in our economy are inextricably linked, but we've also seen examples from around the world of what happens to economies when democracies crumble. And, and let's be very clear about where we are uh, at this point in American history, we're watching the January 6th, um, you know, hearings happen. And, and I think we're learning more and more in, in great detail about just how close we came um, to uh, our democracy um, falling on, on January 6th of, of 2021. And really where we are now, where you have laws being passed in different states to make it harder for people to vote and questions about the integrity of our voting system 
that used to be a, you know, an example to the rest of the world. So it's very important, you know, BEA has been at the table, particularly bringing the business community to the table to advocate on behalf of voting rights um, and to help find some legislation, both at the federal level and at the state and local level. Um, and we're doing a lot of work around um, black business contracting. You know, I talked about the um, just unprecedented amount of money being pumped into the economy from the private, I'm sorry, from the public sector through the infrastructure plan in particular, that's over a trillion dollars of opportunity right there for, for black businesses, but also the you know unprecedented amount of rhetorical and financial commitments made by the private sector in the last two years around black business contracting, racial equity, all of that. You know, these are billions and trillions of dollars being committed to communities of color and to black folks. You know, BEA looks at it as these organizations on the public side and the private side, and even the nonprofit sector have made commitments. They've written checks that we need to help them cash. They have no infrastructure. They have no precedent for how to do it. They have, you know, hopes and dreams and, and great lofty ideas, um, but they need guidance and they need um, folks helping to plug them in with the right members of the community. Um, but also helping to give them solutions, ideas, and initiatives of you know how to make these things actually work and how to do it in a sustainable way, because who knows how long we will have this focus on racial equity. So that's just a little bit of an overview of some of the issues that drive our work. But um, you know, obviously, there are way more than we have time to talk about in detail today. One of the nuanced questions I have for you is that if folks in D.C. usually put Black organizations in a box, um, you know, they, they talk about the UNCF, you know, focusing specifically on black institutions, but, you know, talking about money is different. And I'll tell you that one of my beefs with Democrats, particularly white Democrats, is that they don't understand black folks beyond social justice issues. Republicans inversely only want to talk about money and they don't want to talk about democracy or social justice issues. How does an organization like BEA navigate this and, um, how do you compartmentalize or not these justice issues and these money issues that you work on? It's a great question because with Black in the name, Black Economic Alliance, <laughs> you can imagine that people come to us with the traditionally what they consider to be Black issues of, you know, uh, police reform, criminal justice reform, et cetera. All these, of course, are extremely important and have a huge impact on Black people's ability to build wealth. However, there is a need for, and talking about how and why, be, how BEA is different and why it's necessary. Um, we've never before had a group of business leaders who have reached significant success themselves, um, talking about the need to our economy for black folks to do better. And, and the inextricable link between fixing the structural damage in the black economy and growing the US economy in a sustainable way that benefits everybody. So I'd say BEA is making the business case for why we need to fix the structural damage in the black community. And we're doing it in terms of how and why this is a benefit to everyone else. This is not just charity for black folks. It's absolutely the right thing to do when it's long overdue. Um, but it's really about if we are going to grow our economy at a time when we're having more challenges than we've ever had, gas prices are through the roof, commodity prices are through the roof, the supply chains are, are all backward. Um, wars in, in, uh, in, in Ukraine and elsewhere are making everything harder um, and we still have, we're, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We haven't gotten out of this thing. Um, if we are going to do this right, and if we're going to grow and strengthen our economy, fixing the structural damage with Black folks, which you, you think about it, in, uh, is an absolutely necessary component. And, it, and I think of it in terms of unrealized potential. Um, we are speaking in terms of the possibility and the potential of our economy if we are to bring people off of the sidelines and get them involved, particularly closing gaps uh, around you know, workforce opportunities, closing gaps in access to capital and home ownership, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, it's 
those are the terms we speak in and they are resonating in a different way. And when you have, you know, folks who, uh, there's also a proximity uh, uh, issue here where, you know, black folks who sit on boards with, um, you know, and, and work closely with in a, in a business uh, context with some of the leaders of folks in our private sector and even the public sector just gives us a different platform to speak from. And, and that's something that BEA is really leveraging as much as we can and, and trying to make uh, benefit, you know, our entire community. Last question for you. Well, last substantive question, and I have one kind of throwaway, not a throwaway, mm-hmm. but you know how we do it in the business here. Uh, give, me, give me a high level overview of how you're approaching 2022 politically and what the BEA plans on doing. And then yeah, so- the, the, the throwaway question is, how can we help? Because there are going to be a lot of folk, black yeah. and white, that are listening to this and say, man, look, the BEA is different from these other organizations. It's fresh. It's new. It's the new shiny thing, but it seems mm-hmm. to be substantive and doing real work. So how can these people help um, support the BEA and the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you for that. And and we, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about, you know, your role supporting this organization since its inception and to have, you know, a different perspective, uh, particularly fresh, new, young perspective um, with political savvy has been invaluable. So we appreciate, you know, all the support you've given us as an advisory board member and a, and a supporter since our inception, uh, since before I came along. So the 2022 uh, election is is an interesting one where, you know, you asked earlier about how we would uh, encourage Black folks to get involved. I think a lot of people are feeling disillusioned right now. A lot of people are feeling like, all right, we came out in 2020, we voted, and what's the difference? You know, I don't feel very different than I felt uh, uh, when, when, well, I don't feel different economically than I did when Trump was in office. I think we feel very different emotionally. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I... You know, our plan for 2022 is to build infrastructure for the future. We talked about um, where our our democracy is right now and where our economy is right now. We have to make investments right now that are going to benefit us not only, you know, in late 2022 and early 2023, but really in 2024 and beyond. And I think about that both in the political terms of, you know, if we were if you thought we were close to losing our democracy in 2020, we will be even closer in 2022 and and perhaps, you know, could be the ball game in 2022 or 2024. So we have to be putting in place people who are going to shore up everyone's you know access to the ballot and, and the integrity of our voting system, but then also are going to make real you know, unprecedented and in some cases, uncomfortable investments in black prosperity. Um, people who from inside and outside our community are going to speak to the necessity, not only the benefit, but necessity to make you know significant investments in Black people um, building economic wealth, and that is through you know public policy initiatives, that is through legislation, but that is also through uh, commitments and partnership with the private sector. Um, so that is a, a, a big piece of our or, or our focus for 2022 is putting in place people in places where Black voters you know have an opportunity to have the most impact, but also um, you know, have are at the most risk. So you think about states like Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, North Carolina, et cetera, where black folks, you know, have so much more potential are underperforming for a number of reasons, largely because they've been targeted and kept from the polls, um, but also where they can be examples of, you know, how bringing more black folks into the economy is a net benefit to the entire uh, entire economy. So that's really what our strategy is uh, for, for 2022 is, is shoring up folks in the Senate, shoring up you know, uh, governors, even members of the House, and even further down ballot, folks like secretaries of state, attorneys general, and others who will hold the line 
Um, you see all these folks getting, you know, uh, uh, awards and profiles of courage because they were literally asked by sitting president of the United States to overturn elections. And they had to make very, you know, real decisions, real time decisions about what they were going to do. Those are the people we have to put in place to protect our democracy and black folks ability to um, to move up the ladder economically. And then uh, what can folks do to help? You know, get involved. You know, uh, we, we've talked a lot about <laughs> I, I often harken back to the first days after George Floyd's murder. We all know we were getting calls and texts and emails from folks we hadn't talked to in years, particularly from folks outside of the Black community who were saying, I just have to do something. Tell me what I can do. What book can I read? What organization can I give to? You know, what can I do? I, I, I want folks to, to, you know, recapture that, that spirit and that feeling where they just, they were so bothered by racism and so bothered by the, the legacy of, you know, how we are living um, completely unequal and unfair, like there are two Americas. Um, that is still the case. You know, that that hasn't gone away just because that feeling has gone away. Um, and, and in fact, I'd say it's gotten worse in, in, in some ways because we, we think that we've done things like throw $60 billion from the private sector at it and it's okay now, it is not okay. Um, so the, the, the what to do is, you know, get involved, our work is made possible by the, the contributions of our supporters. That is, of course, financial contributions, but it is also intellectual contributions. We need people to partner with us, help us identify the right organizations, entities, initiatives to partner with. Um, so go to blackeconomicalliance.org. Go to um, any of our uh, Instagram, Twitter, um, uh, uh, so any of our social media, Facebook uh, accounts, and check us out. Follow our work. Um, contribute to our work. Of course, again, financially, help us find the people who will support our work uh, financially and intellectually. So we look forward to finding, you know, more and more partners who are committed to this work and can think in an innovative way about what we have not done, what potential we have not unlocked, what we could be doing differently, uh, and, and have BEA be part of the solution by, you know, bringing the right resources around the table and facilitating real change. Our brother, David Cloning, Executive Director of the Black Economic Alliance. Thank you for joining the Bukhari Sales Podcast. Thank you, my brother. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks for having me.